Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, to the podcast, the Jan Scruggs Vietnam War podcast. Well, we leave the Vietnam War for other wars from time to time, particularly uh, because if they're more relevant uh, to a particular situation, it's good to cover them. And I'm with today John Fenzel, who spent 30 years with the U.S. Army. He was a Green Beret. Uh, he was a leader of uh, Green Berets. He fought in Desert Storm. He ran an A-team. As time went on, he was around when 9-11 uh, occurred, and uh, Tom Ridge, a fellow we both know, uh, came up to me one day, and he said, you know, you live in Annapolis. He said, you, you ought to get together with John Fenzel. He says, you know, he is really, truly the American James Bond. And... <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to meet this guy. But he said, but he he's he said you've got so much integrity, and it's what you did to help bring war criminals to justice, to bring them to justice in the Balkans in 19 in the 1990s. Everything fell apart when a guy named Marshal Tito left what was then Yugoslavia. The entire country fell, fell apart. Armies overnight. Uh, uh, be, began to get themselves weapons, and uh, it, it became a terrible thing for the entire world. Created a lot of economic, social chaos in Europe. Uh, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of refugees. The best number, the saddest number, in it really, the people who died, about one hundred and thirty thousand people. Uh, people agree that's about the, the number. And uh, so this was uh, an incredible time, uh, an incredible time of, of chaos, of, of refugees, of 10 years of war, a Srebrenica, in, in which 8,000 men were taken away. These are Muslim men, and uh, they, they were shot and killed. And uh, I'm going to let you tell us how you got involved in that what your perspectives are on uh, on, on, on how, on how the, the jurisprudence, the international jurisprudence dealt with that, because hopefully, I mean, it's quite possible anyway, that they may be doing that again soon. I mean, there are war times going on, crimes going on right now when we were talking. Well, thanks, Jan. It's just a pleasure to be with you. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, like you, are seeing a lot of the different parallels between um, what transpired in the Balkans and now what's happening in, in, in Ukraine. And so I, I think uh, with those parallels, it's always useful to go back and look at them and analyze them and say, you know, what did we learn? Did we learn anything? And I think we did. I, I think that's the good news. And I, I, um, I, would, I would say that within this story um, regarding the uh, the war crimes tribunal in Yugoslavia. Um, we called it the IC, they call it the ICTY, the international criminal tribunal for Yugoslavia. Um, there are two real, two parts insofar as I was uh, involved. And the first part was, you know, when we deployed there for the first time and it was in 1996, 1997. Um, and I was in 10 special forces group. I was commanding a company um, out of Fort Carson there. And, we learned that we were going to be deploying uh, to Bosnia um, right after the Dayton Peace Accords had been signed. And uh, so it was kind of a, a, a tenuous time, 
because this peace accord had been signed, but the the country you know was still split into three parts, and it was still very much um, not at peace. Uh, all three sides: the Serbs, the Croats, the the, the Bosniaks, the Bosnian Muslims were all at each other's throats. And uh, and and by the way, um, really, all three sides had blood on their hands. And so, within that that whole picture, you um, you also had in the background uh, ICTY crews that were going around knowing that there were um, that there were mass executions trying to find these mass graves. And, um, and so that's where we came in during that, that, uh, that deployment. And I was uh, based at that point in Tuzla. And we had, uh, at one point, a, a friend of mine said, John, do you think you could help the ICTY? They're, they're really having a difficult time because the, the division that was uh, was there, the American division, um, they were charged with supporting the IC2I crews, but they just did not have enough um, manpower to do everything. And uh, and so they had to withdraw their security teams and the security from these, these mass grave sites. And I said, well, sure, you know, let me see what I can do. And I went out to see, and one of the people that I met there, um, I'll call him, uh, uh, Jack O'Connor, but I, I I know that it was a different name. I just can't recall his name right now, but he was South African. And uh, he was a very good friend of Nelson Mandela. Um, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, he had said, you know, John, we don't have any security. We cannot conduct these mass grave exhumations without security. Do you think you could help? And I looked around and I said, well, Jack, you know, I'm, I'm happy to to do what we can. I can't provide you the level of security that, that you used to have with the division, but I can provide you um, one or two men. They will have guns, they'll have radios. And with that, we'll definitely be able to, uh, to do something at least. He said, well, that would be great. And the, the thing is um, to understand about this is that these mass graves were scattered all over the Republic of Serbska. Um, they they had been um, kind of decentralized. They had been dug up by the Serbs once Madeleine Albright um, had actually told Milosevic and others that we know what you did. We know that you conducted these mass executions. And so from there, they uh, they they exhumed those graves and started spreading them into smaller graves all over the Republic of Srpska. So there were lots of mass graves, you know, usually anywhere from 100 to, um, to 400, 500 people. Um, typically men, but also boys um, that that had been executed and thrown into these these mass graves. So, whenever they found one of these, uh, I, we did our very best to help with the security for those those installations because those those ICTY crews were always under threat, and um, and there was lots of ways that they could go about intimidating those crews as well with weaponry and um, by just drive-bys and uh, and with shots through the air, you name it. There were lots of different things. And so they needed the security. Well, ultimately, um, it, this kind of blew up between uh, the uh, the American two-star general and uh, and the, the ICTY, and they really wanted the security. Senator Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey um, was visiting at the time, and he came over to see one of these these mass graves. And at the at the grave site, uh, we were all crowded around while uh, you had these mass grave exhumation crews pulling out the skeletal remains of bodies. 
And, uh, and it was a really surreal, uh, a really surreal just picture of, of, of the, of what war, what happens during wartime. And uh, at one point, the division commander turned to me and he said, um, Major Fenzel, can you please tell uh, Senator Lautenberg about the security that you're providing here um, at the grave? And, uh, and I said, well, General, you know as well as I do that, uh, that you're not providing the security that we are and that I'm independent of, uh, of, of you within, our, within 10 Special Forces Group. Uh, and we're doing the very best we can to support the ICTY. Um, that didn't make him very happy. Um, and uh, and then this South African police chief uh, turned to uh, to Senator Lautenberg and said, you see, sir, we, we really do need the support. We need these exhumations to continue because without the exhumations, um, you, we can't leave Bosnia. Ultimately, this is part of the whole peace process for it to be effective. And um, and so Senator Lautenberg at that point looked at me, he looked at the general and he looked at um, at this uh, South African police chief and he said, the exhumations will continue and the security will continue. <laughs> and so that was really kind of an interesting um, an interesting uh, kind of development in, in, in how, uh, you know, conflicting priorities can kind of lead to, uh, you know, people just doing the right thing. It shouldn't have been an argument to begin with, but, you know, you know, I think Jan, you had mentioned that, uh, that we had, uh, you know, a lot, you know, all of the casualties from the, the Balkans war, but, um, over 25 years with the ICTY, 151, uh, defendants were actually tried there. I'm not sure exactly what the conviction rate was, but, um, but, you know, there are still mass graves over there. And the way that they were able to find those mass graves was through satellite imagery and, and, and through the ability of, uh, of, of heat signatures, you know, from the ground, because when bodies decompose, they release heat. And they also produce different types of vegetation um, from whence they were, they were exhumed. So that's really, it was kind of a fascinating um, whole dimension of warfare that I had not even experienced up to that point. And um, and it was really a you know a shame that that it even had to to occur, but um, but I think that we really made a, a difference, and I was I was you know still am very proud of our contribution that we made there. the The second part of this was um, was when we deployed there for the second time, and you know one of the things that I that I did you know really not knowing you know too much about the Balkans, but I really started to read about the Balkans. You know every single book that I could possibly get my hands on, um, you know from you know uh, uh, Black Lamb, Gray Falcon to Balkan Ghost, you name it. Uh, End Game from David Rohde. There were lots and lots of books that that I read, and one name kept on popping up in nearly every single account of what transpired during the war in the Balkans. And his name was Nasser Orich. He was a Bosniak uh, commander, um, a colonel, a general in their, in their rank structure. And, um, and he was the defender of Srebrenica um, prior to all these mass, ex these mass executions occurring. And he was doing his very best to, uh, to keep the United Nations there in place. And, uh, and ultimately he was told by President Izid Begovic um, that he needed to, to leave. And so um, he, with that order, he didn't have any choice. And right after his departure is when um, the, uh, is when the, uh, the mass executions began. Um, so right when we landed, I, um, you know, 
my first task was to get a language assistant, a translator. And uh, we went through lots, lots of different interviews. And ultimately, I interviewed a, um, a young man. Uh, his name is Demir Mezich. We used to call him Chuck. Um, Chuck Mezich. And, uh, and Chuck is still a good friend. He's living in, in Vienna, Austria. And he is, uh, he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm grateful to have the job. You know, what can I do for you? And I said, well, there's, there's one first task that I want you to, to do for us. And he said, what's that? And I told him, I said, Chuck, I need you to find um, this gentleman named Nasser Orch and I want to meet him. And you can kind of see his whole kind of complexion turn this ashen white. And uh, he said, well, nobody talks to, to Nasser Orch. And I said, well, I need you to find him and I need you to tell him that we need to, to meet. And so he came back about a week later and he said, I found uh, Nasser Orch um, and he wants to meet you. He agrees to meet with you, but uh, he doesn't want to talk about the war. Um, he views himself as special forces, your special forces. So that's why he's willing to meet you. And so um, I'll never forget it. You know, we we met in downtown Tuzla at a little cafe, um, very kind of modern. It had, you know, teak furniture. It had, uh, you know, stainless steel furniture and um, and there was music piping in. And, and over that time, um, Chuck had this ability that not very many um, translators have, and that was to be able to translate simul uh, simultaneously, near simultaneously. So as you're speaking something, um, he's only about two words behind you. Um, and uh, very rare talent. And, uh, he, and, he, and Chuck later on, I found, uh, you know, was had been nearly um, mortally wounded during the war as well. Fearless guy. He had the ability to speak without any accents. He could go into the Republic of Srpska. He could go into Croatia. He could travel around anywhere, and nobody would know exactly what ethnicity he was. Um, and so, just a remarkably talented guy and a fearless guy as well. Well, you know, during this conversation with Nasser, um, Nasser told me, "Look, uh, I'm happy to stay in touch with you, but um, there's one thing I need you to do for me." And I said, "Well, you know, tell us what it is." He said, "I know that they think that I'm a war criminal." I know that uh, that they want to bring me to The Hague, like they're bringing lots of other people to The Hague. Um, but uh, I have nothing to hide. And I'm more than happy to come in, um, tell them, please, not to launch a special operation to capture me. If they want me to come in, all they have to do is call me up and I will I will walk over to the police station and I, I will give myself up. And I'm happy to go through any trial they want. Um, he said, I have I have children. I have a family. I would really appreciate it if they didn't do this. And I told him that that was a deal. We would we would definitely um, convey that that message. Well, over the the course of about I want to say probably about six months, four to six months, um, we got to know Nasser really well. Um, and at one point um, while we were having dinner, I had asked Nasser, "Have you ever been back to your home?" Which was right in Srebrenica. So, well, of course, you know the Serbs. Um, he called them the Chetniks. The Chetniks are occupying. Srebrenica, I could never go back. They would kill me. And I said, well, if you want, we'll, we'll take you back. I'll take you back there. And uh, he said, you would do that? And I said, yes, sir. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring you back, but you have to do it under our conditions. And I said, we're going to have a lead vehicle. We're going to have a trail vehicle. We're going to be in the middle. We're going to be, we're going to put you in uniform. It's not going to be an American uniform, but it's going to be a sterile uniform. So you're going to look like us. And, uh, and we're going to leave around four o'clock in the morning and we're only going to stay on the ground for about 30 minutes and then we have to leave. And he said, I said, if you can agree to that, then we'll take you back there. He said, I will go back 
you know, whenever you want me to. And I said, okay. So we did exactly that. We picked them up at about four o'clock in the morning. We started driving and it was fascinating because all along that drive, he would tell us everything that had happened during the war, all of his close calls, all of the combat actions, all of the things that he had been accused of that he didn't do. And he provided lots of different explanations about what in fact had happened and everything that had been kind of changed. And, uh, and then we we ultimately ended up at about five o'clock in the morning in Srebrenica, and we went to the t- we drove right away to the top of this castle, and I still have a picture um, of, of that, and, and it overlooked all of Srebrenica. All the lights were out, uh, still dark, and as he looked out, you could just see tears streaming down his face. He said, "Oh, they've ruined my, they've ruined my 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 town, my village," and um, it was just a, a beautifully spectacular town and uh and it sustained lots of war damage as well lots of lots of um as you see with within any conflict but uh but it was really touching for him and you know finally the light started coming on in the village below and i said nasser we've got to go otherwise you know all of us are going to be in a pretty bad way by the way this wasn't a sanctioned action at all we just did it on our own because i knew if i had asked permission to do it uh, yeah, we never know. received that permission. Yeah. So uh, he said, well, can we go to one more place? And I said, uh, well, Nasser, we really do need to go. Um, he said, I would really love to be able to see my grandmother's grave. Uh, and I said, is it on the way? He said, yes, it's nearly on the way. So we went to the top of this, uh, uh, this hill and up on the, the, as we went up, we passed by his old house and there was the Serb who had been who had taken over his house right there on the front doorstep. And I said, Master, please don't get out of the car. He goes, No, I'm I'm good. We went to the top. There was the cemetery been been completely overgrown with grass. And he starts walking in. I said, Nasser, stop. I said, Chuck told Chuck message, Chuck, please tell him to stop. And he did. And um he said, What's the matter? I said, the the Serbs have have mined all of these cemeteries because they know that you will come back. I said, and and this one, no doubt is mined as well. You have to retrace your steps exactly as you took them on the way back to the, to our vehicle. And so he saw his grandmother's grave. He picked up a piece of wood and he took those steps back. We got in the car and then long story short, we ended up back in Tuzla at around six o'clock in the morning. It was just becoming light out at that point. And, uh, he said, let's have dinner tonight. So we met back at the same restaurant overlooking this beautiful lake outside of Tuzla. Um, and I still remember it was a fabulous calamari dinner. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he said, I'll do anything for you. He said, nobody ever would take me back to Srebrenica, but you did. And he said, and because of that, um, I don't care what you need. I'll give it to you. Um, I don't care if you need information about this, the whether it's the Serbs, the Croats, the Bosnians, anything like that. Um, I will I will help you out. And so over the course of, you know, the following days, weeks and months, uh, all of that became part of our reporting. He was our source. And at one point I got a call from General Shinseki, who was overall in charge of the uh, he was overall in charge of the whole uh, operation in, in the Balkans. And he uh, he said, Major Fenzel, can, you, can I can I just tell you this? this reporting that you're giving us, it's better than we're getting anywhere else, whether it's out of Langley or whether it's out of any of the intelligence agencies, DIA, anybody, where, where are you getting it? And I said, well, general, um, 
if you don't mind, you know, I know that there's other people on this on this line as well listening, but I, I'd I'd rather not tell you, um, you know, over this open line. Um, I, what I'd rather do is tell you right as we're leaving, if that's okay with you, because I don't want to lose the the source. He goes, I totally understand. And so on the day that we left, uh, I put an envelope right there in that intelligence office, and uh, and it had it included this message that Nasser had told us that look, if you want me to come in, if you want to bring me to the Hague, don't arrest me, just call me, um, and volunteering to come in. Well, I was back at this point commanding the uh, Special Forces Training Battalion um, outside of Fort Bragg at a little post to stamp outpost at the time called Camp McCall. And I got a phone call from Chuck, our translator, and he said they have arrested Komcha. Komcha was our code name for Nasser Orich. Um, And I said, did they launch a special operation to capture him? He said they did right outside of his apartment. And uh, even though we had told them that they didn't need to do that. And I said, well, please let them know, please let his defense team know and him, if you can get a hold of him, that I'm more than happy to testify on his behalf. And I can't talk about what happened, you know, during the war, but I can sure talk about what he did for us. And so um, that actually happened. And they asked me to come back um, to uh, to the Hague and testify for, for Orich and I did. And, you know, it's fascinating because at this time, you still um, had all these other uh, uh, war crimes trials that were going on. And when you go in, um, when you when you arrive at The Hague and you're a witness, you you go there under a pseudonym, you go there under false um, papers and uh, because they don't want anybody to know um, who is actually testifying at the time because they don't want them to be under threat. And so that was me. Um, So I arrived and uh, I was in a suit. Um, I walk into this this room and it's very much like a star chamber with three judges in the front and you have the prosecution on one side on the other side, you have the defense. And then as you look up, you'll see the defendant. And as I looked up, I saw off to the side, Nasser Orich looking much different um, with two uh, guards from the Hague um, on either side of him. And, and so over the course of the next four hours, uh, I was questioned by both sides, the defense, the, uh, the, the prosecution who were prosecuting him for murder because of, uh, of things that his, his men had done. And, um, and I, I just told them, there's nothing that I can tell you about what happened during the war. I don't know. But what I can tell you is what this gentleman did for us while we were there. He saved lives, not only um, uh, Bosnian lives, but Croat and Serb lives. And oh, by the way, our lives as well, because of the information he gave us. It was predictive intelligence. We knew what was going on a week, a month out, um, every single time. And through that, he saved countless lives just by by um, by volunteering that information to us and providing it to us. And uh, and there was lots of give and take, very specific questions, which I did my very best to answer. And, um, and then it was over. And as I was walking out of the courtroom, something told me just to look back. And I looked back up at Nasser, flanked on both sides by both guards. And I'll never forget this, Jan, for as long as I live. He bowed in his seat. And and at that point, you know, I just knew I had done the right thing, you know, um, testifying for somebody who really um, helped us out a lot. And, you know, um, he was ultimately uh, 
uh, acquitted, or he might have just been um, uh, let go on, you know, for time served. But uh, but he was essentially released um, on that charge, and he was acquitted, I think, of that charge as well. I think he was he might have been convicted on a on a, on a lesser, much lesser charge. But at the end of the day, um, you know, that's the Balkans. And so, you know, you fast forward now, we can talk a little bit about this, but here we are, you know, um, with the Ukraine. And I never thought that I would see it again. But one thing I did know, and, and you know this as well from your Vietnam experience, is that, um, you know, war definitely brings out the worst in people, hands down. But you know what? It also, I learned, brings out the best in people. And and that's certainly, you know, one of the things that I, that I saw over there. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of become, you know, an enduring lesson that's been indelibly written in my own mind. And, uh, and I just, I hate to see what's happening, you know, in, in Ukraine, which isn't too far from the Balkans today. Well, this has been a very fascinating and important discussion. And hopefully a lot of people will hear it. This will open people's minds up about whatever actually happens in these war crime tri- tribunals. It's really important information. We want to thank you for your service, John, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in the relatively near future. All right, Jan, thank you so much for having me.